Well, welcome. We're up to episode 50, extraordinarily, of this Woo-hoo! podcast. Yo, oh, yeah, party down. We can get all our mates around and get hammered. Have a Zoom, a Zoom party. You know, we can get, well, I can get all my mates around, Hugh, because it's a maximum of two people. <laughs> you are far too modest, uh, Peter. Uh, uh, and if you've just and joined us. And I would still be the, well within the rules, too. That's well the within thing. the I would, rules. I, w- I wouldn't even be pushing the, the limit, I don't think. <laughs> I certainly feel as if I'm in a, in a, in a, in a weightless, uh, mateless world after, after this amount of time sitting in my, in my lonely room. I've got to say, like most of us, I think. <laughs> the parks, thankfully, are full of people, um, and it's nice to see others getting out and about. But if you've just joined us for the first time, this is The Professor and the Hack. Uh, the Professor is Peter Van Onselen, of course, from Network 10, political editor in the University of Western Australia and Griffith University. I'm Hugh Rimmerton. I am, uh, indeed, the Hack. Um, now, you wanted to talk, Peter, about something other than COVID. I don't think we're going to get through a full podcast without COVID, but well, that, that was my, my, my dream of if we got to 50 episodes once we were in the midst of the COVID crisis a few episodes back was to have a COVID-free 50th uh, and be able to talk about other things. But I don't think we can do that. Well, we can't do it now because we've started talking about it. But we also can't do it because there's actually too much going on at the moment in the COVID space. I mean, by the end of this week, lockdowns are formally getting lifted in more significant ways we expect after the National Cabinet. There's also uh, an earlier in the week national cabinet as we speak tomorrow morning, I believe the treasurer is addressing the national press club. Dan Tian, the education minister, absolutely humiliating capitulation from insiders on the weekend where he got on there and he slammed Dan Andrews, the Victorian premier said that he's lacked leadership a few hours later uh, in a show of leadership from the prime minister, who as I understand it rang him immediately when he got off air uh, and the conversation could be heard beyond the person holding it away from his ear as he got yelled at. Uh, he made it quite clear to Dan, <laughs> to, to Dan T and to apologise to that other Dan, uh, and he issued a statement by the end of the day, basically retracting what he'd said. And and Dan Andrews, uh, Daniel Andrews, you know, diplomatically saying that now for him is all ancient history. We shouldn't be fighting amongst ourselves. We should be fighting the virus. But from what do you High understand of that? Did Dan Andrews call Morrison to express his displeasure? Or did Morrison work that out for himself before he put that call into Dan Tia? I don't definitively know the answer to that. I'm led to believe Dan Andrews got in contact somehow to express his displeasure. Now, it might have just been a text or it might have been a phone call or it might have been through an intermediary or perhaps that tip is wrong and there was no discussion. But whether there was a discussion or not, it makes sense that Scott Morrison realised that what Dan T and his education minister was flat out the wrong thing to do, not just because we're in the midst of a pandemic and it was quite a personal attack on a premier at a time where we're supposed to be having these supposed consensus national cabinets, but also, and this is the important point for me, Hugh, Dan Andrews not a once had a go at Scott Morrison during the bushfires and the fallout from the Hawaiian adventure. He, at the time, was repeatedly baited by journalists and asked, what do you think? What do you think about what the PM did? And not once did he even come close to cracking and having a jibe at Scott Morrison. And, and that's, I have to say, unusual, particularly when you cut across political parties in a, in a situation like that. And full credit to Dan Andrews that that's what he did. So full credit to Scott Morrison, whether it was prompted or otherwise, that he got on onto his education minister and gave him a gobful 
and made him humiliate himself and retract from his position. Because frankly, if what goes around comes around, the right reaction had to be a back down from Dan Tian because Daniel Andrews didn't deserve that. Uh, he didn't. Do da- da- Daniel Andrews is tremendously popular within Victoria at the moment. Most premiers are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems as they handle this. So was it a uh, a political judgment that um, you know you don't you gain nothing by essentially going out to belt over the head someone who's far more popular than the education minister Dan T and his. Uh, I mean, the the, cur- the thing which is curious to me is that the assumption was by many is that when Dan Tian made that attack on Dan Andrews, it was uh, an that he'd been tier. given permission yeah. in some way, or in fact instruction to go and do that for some purpose. The sense of it is that is that he might have been freelancing. He himself, Dan Tian, has said it's because he was feeling such frustration. Mm. Uh, where do you I've got a very strong. I've got yeah. I've got a very. I've got a very strong view on this. He absolutely, they don't put, particularly the coalition, don't put people on insiders as the, you know, if you like flagship political interview once a week program that Sunday morning. They don't put somebody on it without a plan. And they certainly had a plan by putting their education minister, Dan Tien, on the show to take on Victoria on schools as, in their view, the one recalcitrant state that isn't playing ball with the rest of the nation, particularly with what the Prime Minister wants in terms of schools coming back. But I believe that it was an incorrect hit. It was an unguided missile in the way that he got so personal about Dan Andrews. So, yes, he was sent there with a job to do in a public policy sense to challenge Victoria and to push the, the case of the Commonwealth. But no, I absolutely believe that it was not an intended hit the way that he delivered it, getting so personal about the Premier. And that's what then presumably had the flow on effect, whether there was or wasn't a call from Dan Andrews to Scott Morrison, uh, a realisation from Scott Morrison that his minister overreached, uh, and then, of course, forcing him to back down as a result. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what struck me about that was the vociferous nature of the attack on Dan Andrews when Victoria is not so far behind uh, New South Wales or Queensland in terms of schools. The the difference being is that Victoria hasn't yet set a date for the resumption of schools. But in New South Wales, it's only one day a week initially that starts next week. In Queensland, again, it's off into the future before schools come back. So it's not as if Victoria is such an outlier and the Victorian chief medical officer, when it comes down to we've got to follow the health advice, was taking the advice to take a more cautious approach than that from the federal uh, chief medical officer, Brendan Murphy. So, you know, in a sense, Andrews is following medical advice within Victoria and he's not far removed Mm. from those other states. And we've heard on Monday from Gladys Berejiklian that she says that it is inevitable that there will be a rise in children catching coronavirus once schools go back uh, into sort of full of normal practice. So everyone kind of gets the notion as a seven-year-old was the only uh, seven-year-old boy was the only new infection in New South Wales from Sunday into Monday morning. And she's warning, look, there's going to be more of that, but we've just got to be ready for that. So plainly, as Dan Andrews has said, this is still fragile. Mm. Uh, and, and that, you know, we've got to be very cautious about opening up, no matter how frustrating it is to keep the lid on things. Yeah, and look, just what's really happening here, what, what frustrates me is that there's a lack of nuance. Uh, like what you just delivered there, that's nuance. 
whereas there's a lack of it amongst uh, the Prime Minister when he talks about this, and by extension, his Education Minister as well, I suppose. You know, they, they talk in these absolutist terms, you know, and frankly, so does the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy, who, as an expert in the field, should know better than to be so absolutist. You know, all the advice says schools are safe, children can go back. Social distancing even apparently magically is no longer needed when you walk through the school gates. It, it just, it's a lack of nuance. People aren't stupid, all right? There's different studies around the world. The definitive study that they rely on is anything but definitive. And the sample was of schools when they were socially distancing and a third of the students weren't going anyway. So it's a completely different set to, to what they're looking at. You know, there, there's different views. Uh, there's inconsistencies. But I understand the push to get schools back insofar as I can accept that there are, you know, households that have got domestic violence and there are mental health issues for kids and there's the whole issue of their education. Yes, children are perhaps less, um, you know, sort of symptomatic or at least, you know, less at risk with the virus. I I get that it's a, a complex space and it can land you on the side of trying to get schools back sooner rather than later, but it can also land you on the other side and be a little bit more cautious than perhaps some others have been. There's all different examples of it being done differently all around the world. What gives me the proverbial shits, quite frankly, is the way that the Prime Minister stands up as though this is a black and white issue. It's just not. It's nothing like a black and white issue, even if you can have a bit of sympathy for either side of the debate. You know, treat us like we've got a couple of neurons to rub together, neurons, I should say, to rub together, rather than not. You know, it's... I don't know. I, I, what do you think? Is it they take the view, Hugh, the government, the reason that they're so absolutist with the rhetoric? They take the view that if they're more nuanced than that, then it gets out of control and the public don't follow uh, them. Well, that's always the argument about public messaging, and and this was also a problem for Brendan. Do you Murphy, buy that? She, well, I think I think um, the traditional view among polit- you'd know this better than I among those who are uh, media advisors, communications advisors to to governments, to oppositions, is that the public can't get nuanced messaging. This was the strength of Tony Abbott with his three-word slogans, was that mind-numbing as they were to anyone who was paying close attention to it, uh, they work. And in fact, that was Kevin Rudd's success, was that he, he, he took on board the message that when you've said the same thing so much that your brain is starting to leak out through your ears, the audience only then <laughs> is starting to, for the first time, hear what you're saying. Working families, working families, working families from Kevin Rudd back in 2007. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the long held view of this is that forget nuance in public political messaging. And yet you're saying but, but, you've got to give nuance. Yeah, but do you, yeah, because I, I don't think, I, I know that that's, what they have always said, and, and to some extent, as mind-numbing as it is to hear them say the same thing over and over again, I think in the ordinary course of events, they're probably, by and large, right about that. But in this pandemic, the only bloody news out there is to talk about the coronavirus. Everyone's interested because we all feel like it affects us in some way, and, and quite profoundly so. I think that nuance is required because the whole point of the other strategy is that no one's listening. So you say it a million times, then eventually they hear you once, but now everybody is listening. And so everyone's paying attention. So you just hear the same banal black and white over and over again. And everyone hears it over and over again because they're paying more attention and they're thinking more about it. Normally in their daily lives, people don't give a damn about politics. It comes and goes and they maybe briefly think about it come election time. So the old approach applies, but now we're all sitting around in our spare time 
thinking through the implications of this bloody virus. So I, I think it stands to reason that people are more nuanced because they're thinking through, oh, well, hang on. If schools do or don't go back, here are all the elements to it. So a PM that isn't so definitive uh, about it and just kind of acknowledges that, look, there's complexity here, there's good, there's bad. On balance, we reckon that it probably makes more sense to try to return to school and here's why. Yeah. So let's give it a go, Australia. I think people would go for that. Yeah, and I think one of the thing, one of the areas where uh, Morrison's leadership has picked up and, and uh, he's done so much better at it is in actually loosening the hand on the tiller and letting uh, premiers uh, have diverging opinions. That was a, a week mm. or so ago, a couple of weeks ago. He certainly seemed to be less defensive. It, helped, it did and, help and him. And he grew bigger right. when, yeah, when he did. let different states do things and recognised the sovereign responsibilities of states over things like schools. And then uh, in marches Dan Tian like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, look, it's interesting. I, I notice that the National Cabinet meeting is going to extend uh, across the Tasman. Jacinda Ardern is going to join it. Uh, obviously, in a constitutional sense, she has no uh, role to play. But it's, but still uh, no elbow. Still no elbow. Yeah, but, you know, what's? I think it's a good move to bring Ardern in, if only well, for a whole bunch of reasons. She's got questions she wants to ask. Uh, she's interested in the COVID Safe app, for example. Um, and and frankly, if there is going to be any blood re-enter the artery in terms of uh, international travel, um, it's going to be across the Tasman because of the similarity and the flattening of the curves yeah, across the true. two countries. So it is, I think, really important for us that as we start to look and hope towards an opening up, that we look towards New Zealand. New Zealand is desperately keen to open up to Australia again because tourism for nothing else is so vital to its economy. Will they, will they, will they rejoin? Will they not rejoin? Will they join the Federation queue? They can become a, a state in the Australian Commonwealth. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll happily take their rugby players. Yes, indeed. As they in, take rugby players from the uh, Pacific islands and, and rebrand <laughs> them as New Zealanders, <laughs> as indeed do, uh, do the, do the rugby codes in, in quiet, Australia. Quiet. <laughs> Yeah. Look, uh, look, I think it's good that she's involved. And I think that that means it's, it signals that we're looking forward a little bit as to how we might try and get through this. But I take you back to Daniel Andrews. His view very strongly and clearly expressed is that for all the fact that everyone's frustrated, he says, don't let frustration get the better of us. The strategy is working. Do this once and do it properly. In other words, don't ease off too early because if we go to second waves, uh, that is disastrous. He says the, uh, the, you know, the, the advances that we've made against the virus is fragile. He says that's proven by this outbreak that's happened around the meatworks in Victoria, staff at the meatworks. Suddenly you've got 22 people infected from one site. He says this is far from over and we have to stay the course. And so you can see this frustration, this kind of tension, which has been there since the start, uh, mm. that's gone between hell, we've got to save ourselves from a pandemic that's going to kill lots of the people to my God, what's this doing this to the economy? We've got to start easing it off. And, and the economy argument is starting to come in as people feel as if to some degree, the pandemic has been beaten in Australia and he's just giving that cautionary voice. Maybe not so fast. What do you think? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I can understand a slowness to want to open things back up again. Uh, let me put it this way. I, I found this really interesting. When I was talking to a, 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 a senior member of the government on background. Let me put it that way. They don't think that they can eradicate this. Uh, they believe that all they can do is suppress it. 
Now, that is the national view. That is not what New Zealand thinks, and that is not what apparently Victoria thinks. So Victoria thinks that you can eradicate it, and New Zealand is going for eradication as well. But the view of the Commonwealth is that you can't eradicate it, you can only suppress it. So if you decide that you can only suppress it, their view is we might as well just get on with opening things up, albeit cautiously prepared to perhaps close them down again, be vigilant about a second wave. That's where the tracking app perhaps comes into it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I can see why if your aim is eradication rather than suppression, then I can see why you try to hold on longer. Of course you would, because you think that you can get there. And so that seems to be what Victoria's aiming for. I don't know how that works as part of a Commonwealth. That seems to be what New Zealand's after. I don't know how that works if they want to ultimately open up to us, if they can eradicate it, but all we do is suppress it. But that they've got different aims and those different aims profoundly change your attitude, I think, about when and how you reopen. Because if you're after eradication, you don't care about just crunching down hard for longer, even with the economic impact of that, because you've got a, a higher purpose. If, however, you think you can't get there and that's a waste of time, um, you and it's incidental that maybe you do get that, but you, that's not your goal, then I can see why you'd be more prone to want to open things up sooner rather than later. And that's because your purpose is suppression, not eradication. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some other issues, uh, more pressure coming on China, particularly from the United States, but also from Australia. Also, the COVID Safe app, it seems there's a bit of a stalling of uptake. Uh, the pressure going back on again for us to talk about that. And lots of other things to talk about. Let's take a quick break, Peter. 12 years ago, Australia fell in love with MasterChef. Then it became a worldwide phenomenon. Your favourite MasterChef contestants are back to win. Poe. I have a little bit of unfinished business. Laura Reynolds. I'm sacrificing a lot, but it's worth it. Callum Hayden. I'm coming back to win. MasterChef on 10. Welcome back. Episode 50 of The Professor in the Hat. Quickly on the COVID Safe app, I noticed that there is a another new push uh, by, uh, by premiers as well as the government to get us all onto this app. Uh, it seems as though after that early uptake, it has stalled a little bit. Um, do you, do mm. you get that sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's stalled at below 20% of the population. They always said that they needed 40%. And in fact, a lot of experts said you needed 80%, not 40%. So the fact that they are less than halfway to their goal, which is halfway towards what experts say you actually do need, means that it's an absolute flop at this point in time, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, that may, I'm wary about this. And I think we've also got the situation now where they, right now, as we speak, as they admit, it doesn't work. You know, it's working in terms of making contacts. But if you were to be found to have coronavirus, it's not, um, it does not yet up and running. So that's, that wasn't in the original advertising for it. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, that's, I think, surprised a lot of people. It surprised me, actually. I found that out on Twitter where people were saying, hey, journos, get on it. You know, this thing doesn't even, isn't even operational yet, despite, I, I haven't double-checked this, but despite seeming rhetoric from the politicians prior to that suggesting otherwise. But the other thing is, which one of the reasons I turned around about the value of the app, I've got plenty of reservations about it, but the thing that flipped me on the app is that at the end of the day, it's only one part of a multi-layered approach to try to do their best with this. One part of it is the app. Obviously, the more people that uptake it, the better. But because it's not a, a single approach, they've got other things that they're doing. 
they've got the old fashioned contact tracing that they do out of call centers, obviously, but then they've also got uh, the sewerage uh, analysis that they're doing as well. Basically politicians, you know, sort of um, sifting through our shit. Um, we, uh, we have to do that with what they have to say on a daily basis, Hugh. So it's about time. How does it work? Way, I mean, not, the... not the journalistic sifting through the audio, <laughs> but uh, how does it work to follow people's sewerage to find out? Well, uh, well, it's, it, we should clarify for any listeners. It's not your, your individual um, excrement that gets analyzed. It's the collective. So what they do, they, they do it in, they do it for other things as well. They do it to chase tuberculosis, I believe at different points in, in time. Essentially, it just allows them to get a sense of if anyone has had the virus apparently by doing so from particular regions. So they do it at different testing plans to be able to say, well, it looks like it's spiked here or it's diminished there, or there's a surprise here where there might be some undiscovered cases. It's obviously much more broad brush in what it's able to provide. But the point according to Greg Hunt is that, you know, they get that data and then they add that to the tracing app data. And then they've got the, um, the, the contact tracing that they actually do um, at, a, at a more laborious level. And you bring all these parts together and you kind of build a picture. It's not an exact science, but it, it, it does give you a, a fairly decent spread of information. Well, we, we know there are plenty of unsung heroes in the public health space, but the, uh, <laughs> the sewerage uh, study is, uh, would have to be uh, right up the top of the list of that. China, we, we're seeing now increasing language from people like uh, Mike Pompeo, former head of the CIA, now Secretary of State, ramping up the language against China. We're seeing echoes of that in Australia. Sarah Henderson, now a senator, uh, formerly the member for Karangamite. She chairs the Parliamentary Joint Committee on, um, on uh, Human Rights. Uh, but it's not in that role that she's suggesting that the government needs to uh, look closely, review all connections between Australian scientists and Chinese scientists, particularly in the area of virology. Uh, I haven't been able to get onto her personally today uh, to find out exactly what it is that she's afraid of. But it seems as though this ramping up of, of the, that language, by the way, let's start straight off. There should be a global inquiry into the sources of, oh, of, yeah. of this Roger. whole pandemic. And China is being uh, unhelpful in not saying, damn right, let's all work together on this. So China, I think, is on the wrong side of history and of that argument as it resists any global investigation. But it's interesting that the language is becoming more forceful, more suspicious about China, and it's coming from the government and members of parliament within the government. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm not suggesting they're saying this, but it's almost like there's a, we're, we're ebbing closer towards that internet conspiracy uh, that, you know, not just this idea that this is a lab created virus, but also the, 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 the more full, the even more full on internet conspiracy, which is that uh, World War Three has already started, you know, because this is a, a war based on germs and it's up and running, but we just don't even know it. Yet. And the Ch China let all this go, concocted it in a lab, and then let it go to destroy Western, uh, Western economies and all that kind of business. Uh, let's put on the record that the best science available so far has, has indicated that this uh, could not be a created yes. virus <laughs> uh, because it contains elements that uh, weren't previously known in viruses. So uh, you could patch together viruses, apparently, but uh, this contains stuff that hadn't previously been identified. Uh, whether it came from the virology uh, labs there in Wuhan or out of the markets themselves, which would be the way in which many of these uh, viruses that cross from the animal into the human world have tended to happen around these these markets and uh, 
and livestock raising, bird flus, and so on in the past. So, you know, who knows? But a proper inquiry of how it runs uh, doubtless should be done for the good of all of us because uh, this won't be the last pandemic. There'll always be another one coming at some stage. Let's quickly move on to some other non-COVID-related issues. We now know that uh, uh, fresh from having polling published in the papers showing that John Barillaro, the uh, New South Wales National Party leader and Deputy Premier, would win the former bellwether seat of Eden Monero, being um, left open by the retirement through health reasons of uh, of Mike Kelly, an admired man. Uh, Barillaro, despite apparently being in a winning position, has now said that he won't run. Uh, and he's thanked um, Gladys Berejiklian for her gentle counsel in helping him to that decision. So <laughs> what does this mean? Is Andrew Constance, the, um, the, uh, the Liberal Party uh, state minister, well, who lives down yeah, there, appar- going to get it? Apparently. Yeah, look, apparently he now is the front runner. Certainly Liberals like the idea of him running because... You know, the, the, the Labor candidate as the mayor of Bega, uh, she's presumably got some local uh, cachet in, when it comes to the role that she played around the bushfires and local uh, relevance and, and, you know, local standing. Liberals want Andrew Constance to run for the fairly obvious reason that he's one of the politicians who elevated significantly in the public mind, particularly in that locale during the bushfires. And that would actually help mitigate or militate against the negativity towards Scott Morrison for his handling of the bushfires, particularly in that area, notwithstanding that he probably also brings some approval because of the coronavirus more generally and how he's handled that. But Andrew Constance should be a great candidate uh, for it. And liberals, for that reason, if no other, want him to consider running. He's, he's, certainly, he's, he's certainly put a human face on that disaster in, in a way. Yeah, he showed yeah. real but, humanity and strength in, in, a, in a catastrophic time for that community. But, but I have to say, though, how does, how does it work, though, that he would want to run for the federal politics other than naked ambition? And I'm sorry, but you know, he's got a halo around him at the moment where he's apparently beyond criticism, but I'm, of course, always happy to be the bad guy. What I don't understand about this choice, if he, in fact, is making it, is a couple of things. One, he said he was leaving politics, essentially, as I recall, um, shortly after the fires. Uh, he said he was also leaving the ministry. I think, well, he, he, he took he took leave. Yeah, he took leave from the ministry. It looked at first as if he was going to resign from the ministry, and then he quickly said, "Oh, no, I'm just going to suspend my involvement so I can look after my local community." Which I which I also get for his own mental health, quite frankly, with what he went through. I mean, we all saw some of the harrowing interviews that he's given. We know the context, so I'm not remotely critical of any of that. But he's now sort of pivoted to this rhetoric more recently which I've, I've been a fan of which is that I want to stay because I want to make damn sure that the bushfire communities are looked after and yada 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 that is mostly what is going to happen at the state level what, what is he saying now that he can do that better at the federal level or is he just no longer making that his focus well, there is a there is an argument a, a, there is an argument that the federal level some of the supporters disappeared uh, with the bushfires having been shifted out of front of mind, that uh, well, as long as he gets there and slams his own colleagues, I mean, how's that going to work? Try you know, on on the on the by-election campaign because he's been very frank, hasn't he? In a lot of his rhetoric so far, he actually really gave Morrison a gobful and said that he agreed with the the Coburg, wasn't it, residents who Cabargo, who yeah. gave the Cabargo, that's it, who gave the prime minister a gobful. He said he yeah, he said he got what he deserved. Is he going to be running around? I mean, it'll probably work for him. Is he going to be running around on the by-election trail every time 
a microphone gets shoved in his face and somebody says, what do you think of how the Prime Minister handled the bushfires? And he just turns around and he says, abominably, but luckily I'm running. Yeah, look, look really he's well. a seasoned <laughs> enough politician and, and good enough to, to be able to make, to make that shift. Um, I think what's in, interesting or strikes me is that this by-election presents more dangers for Anthony Albanese than it does for Scott Morrison. You're not expected oh, in yeah, government to time. win a by-election in government. And if they lose it, if the government loses it and Labor holds onto that seat, it's no skin off Scott Morrison's nose. He can say quite easily, well, look, you know, that's the way these things go. That was always what was going to be expected. But if a Constance, he would seem to be the, the, the prime candidate to win that for the coalition. I know Jim Molan, who lives in the electorate, uh, is, uh, you know, is potentially, you know, trailing his coat. But um, if Labor was to lose that, uh, it would be awkward, would it not, for Anthony Albanese? Well, well oh, yeah, so this is, this is the last thing that Anthony Albanese needed is this by-election because, you know, as you say, it doesn't happen very often that an opposition loses one of its own seats in a by-election to a government. It's like a one-in-a-hundred-year event. Uh, you know, like the pandemic, frankly. But you'd have to say, wouldn't you, that Scott Morrison's government and therefore his candidate, depending on who they pick, of course, starts as favourite, despite that history, because of the current context. Surely... Ooh, the bushfires will have a, have a word a traditional, to say. Well, and that might be... And you're right, Hugh, that, that's the one case. And, and Mike, Mike Kelly I had a don't... big personal following. He's a well-liked man. He's well-admired across that's a all problem. things. That's a problem because when he goes, you lose that personal following and for the Labour. Yeah. Anyway, look, we'll see all that. And the time remaining to us, and we do want to talk about some things that are non-COVID. Uh, once again, we see... Uh, errors by Angus Taylor and Peter Dutton. Uh, more of this, uh, at best, sloppiness. Uh, Peter Dutton failing to declare a million-dollar North Queensland property on his, uh, you know, on his uh, members' register of interests. Oh, Hugh, Hugh, you're being so unkind. I mean, well, everybody loses a million-dollar property every now and, and then. And the good thing about Peter Dutton is that, you know, he always cuts slack for everyone else. I mean, if this was some, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Tamil family in Biloela, he's always willing to just cut him a bit of slack and say, yeah, you're well liked in the community. You're well established. You're doing work that others won't do. So stick around. You're a great family. You're what the future of Australia should look like or any of the other concerns. This is one of the things that, that I think sticks in people's craw is the, uh, is the hypocrisy on law and order. The law seems to be for some and not for others when it comes to Peter Dutton. And uh, we could go and dedicate a podcast to that subject. Angus Taylor, meanwhile, uh, you've been watching him. Oh, don't get, don't get me started on Angus Taylor. What on earth is going on there? I mean, the police have responded to questions on notice from state budget hearings out of New South Wales. And they have confirmed that despite the Prime Minister saying that Angus Taylor and his government would fully, co by extension, his, Angus Taylor, his government would fully cooperate with a police investigation. It is not fully cooperating when, as confirmed by Mick Fuller, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, it is not fully cooperating when the police request an interview and don't get one, but instead get directed to the minister's lawyer who deals with them and only gets a statement from the minister, not an actual sit-down Q&A and a proper interview. That is not full cooperation. Yes, it's cooperation, but it is not full cooperation. Well, well, it's, the well it's, it's exercising promised. your legal rights. Uh, you, you know, it is not. It is not saying no. Oh, no yeah, up sure. yours, copper, go and get stuffed. 
uh, it's not resisting arrest, but it's not. But it's it's. It, but no. it is not. It's, <laughs> you know, this is what white collar criminals. I'm not suggesting, for the sake of defamation lawyers, that uh, Angus Taylor is a white collar criminal. But this is the kind of behaviour that white collar criminals use: is talk to my lawyers, and no one imagines that that is uh, what you or I would expect as cooperation from a minister of the crown. No, and and as Penny Wong said uh, last week in, in a media conference she gave, uh, it should be a higher bar. Uh, you expect ministers to do more in terms of full cooperation in a police investigation than simply refer them to his lawyer. Now, on the other side, and he did not. Uh, 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 I think that point is well made, and we've got very little time. I want to throw you to Christina Keneally, prominent frontbencher, member of the leadership group, uh, saying that we must come out of this coronavirus, cri- coronavirus crisis with a new um, view as to how immigration is structured uh, in Australia, uh, better planned to protect Australian jobs. This has been, uh, has been uh, tweeted on uh, approvingly by Sally McManus from the ACTU. Others have said this is appalling. It's like a Labour Party dog whistle against uh, you know, brown-skinned workers mm. who come in from overseas. Where, where do you think this is coming from? And what, what, what are the internal ructions that opens up in the Labour side of politics? Look, the, the short answer, and it, it requires a long answer, but the short answer is I think it potentially opens a lot of ructions. It, it, it points to a history of the Labor Party that it's tried to move away from in its more modern days. I don't think Christina Keneally means it that way as a dog whistle, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have those implications. And I do think that it's a reasonable discussion to try to have about immigration uh, in the context of jobs, given the fallout from the coronavirus crisis, but it is a bloody awkward thing to do because of what it stirs up. And it does that on all sides, but that it, it will particularly exercise the concerns of some within the Labor Party. So you've got, you've got two battles against it. One is that business actually likes the flexibility that has been available to them by being able to employ mm. workers you know, for certain skills. Uh, so that's suited business. And, and been good for growth and, you know, maybe suppresses wages a little bit. The other side is that, uh, so, so business won't like what you're saying. And the other side is, is, is there's, a, there's a large chunk, not just of the Labour Party, but also of the kind of the green element of it, which will see that as being um, a problem. Uh, so anyway, look, I think we're out of time. So that's number 50. We could have gone to 100 all in this one. But um, good to talk to you, Peter. Well, we can discuss we can discuss that in an upcoming podcast, though, because I think that the fallout from what Christina Keneally has opened up here is something that we'll be discussing for weeks to come. Stay well, everybody. See you for number fifty-one. See you. See you. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, Stu here from 10 Speaks. It's our one year anniversary and we are glad to have been able to create some great shows across a wide range of topics. There's politics with The Professor and the Hack hosted by Hugh Rimmington and Peter Van Onselen. Lifestyle and design in Hammer at Home with Barry Dubois. Deep dives on our reality shows with The Reality Bite and Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Short Black with Sandra Sully, which shares the stories of some amazing women. Starstruck with Angela Bishop looks back at interviews with the biggest stars in entertainment. 
There's Where's William Tyrrell, Ramsey Beat. That's a cheeky little pun on Ramsey Street for those not paying attention closely. There's the Western Front. There's Husey, We Have a Problem. Ooh, what a tasty menu. Go to the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play to check them all out. And thanks to everyone who has listened and helped make our first year so big.